Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems. Everyone has a subjective, awe-inspiring viewpoint of our reality, and the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with unique humans. Eclectic Spacewalk means a broad and diverse range of Earth-based philosophies viewed from outer space. Send us any recommendations on who we should talk to next. But remember, we are not just a podcast. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get first access to every podcast episode at eclecticspacewalk.substack.com. Connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter at eSpacewalk and the hashtag EclecticSpacewalk. Find us on Minds.com at EclecticSpacewalk. And as always, you can find everything on the website, EclecticSpacewalk.com. We want to talk with anyone over our shared humanity and best practices of life. Now, let's have a conversation. Hello, and welcome to Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. Today, we're joined by Ashley Colby. Ashley is an environmental sociologist, homesteader, author, and the co-founder of Rizoma School, an executive director at Rizoma Foundation and Loconomy Project. Welcome to Conversations, Ashley. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So first off, Ashley, uh, where did you grow up? Um, so I grew up in, in Chicago, um, in the city of Chicago. My dad is um, a Chicago firefighter, so or was, retired. Um, so there's requirements with that that you have to live within the city limits. So we did. I grew up um, in the south side of the city in a in like a leafy Chicago neighborhood, um, lots of working class people, um, a lot of uh, police officers as well. Um, kind of a public school kid, um, you know, super diverse public school um, that I went to a Catholic, all girls Catholic high school, um, which was interesting. And it's kind of like a sort of uh, Catholic, Irish, Polish um, ancestry around here um, where, I, where I grew up. And um, yeah, so my background is basically a city kid, public school, city kid, working class. Um, my trajectory kind of changed relative to a lot of people I grew up with when I got a scholarship to college um, that kind of set me in, you know, sort of a different path. But yeah, that's my that's my background. Yeah, Chicago's great. I, I lived there. It was my uh, second city, like a, like a lot of people. Uh, so I lived there for for a couple years uh, after school because I went to school in in Illinois. So it was very very interesting. Uh, three years, you know, I was in there for the snowpocalypse two thousand twelve. Uh, oh, the nice. The, the polar vortex and stuff. So yeah, was, we were there at the same time then. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it was it was intense. Uh, I remember like the snow drifts, how they had to uh, bring in you know the the earth movers and stuff because the plows like literally couldn't get through. And it's like yeah, whoa. everybody has those memories of those like of snow events there was one time where I was um staying in a part of Chicago with with Patrick and in, in his home and it was like you open the door and like up to waist level was snow you know yeah. and it's just like got the imprint of the door on it. that's wild yeah. yeah I remember I remember seeing like snow drifts so high but then uh I when I when when it shut down the city of Chicago and knowing that Chicago gets so much snow constantly every year, uh, right. I, I was, I was very surprised. And then when I saw that Lakeshore drive, you know, the, the buses for the CTA, People just abandoned their cars. A bus, it, it literally, yeah. and it was like, wait a second, 
I saw this in like day after tomorrow. Am I living like through this like apocalyptic thing? And it's like, man, this is foreshadowing of sorts, you know? So that was an interesting yeah. uh, thing. Of, but, but I mean, uh, yeah, I'm actually going to go to Chicago. You're, you've been uh, around there for the, for the summer. Uh, summertime shy is real. You know, that, that's one of my favorite, favorite things, uh, the bars and everything. Uh, you, you were on the South side. I was more on the North side. So tell me about that a little bit. Maybe we can start the distinction off of that. Like cultural differences from the North side, South side is huge. Is very huge. there and parent. Yeah, yeah. Huge. Um, so it's like socks versus Cubs, I guess, you know, yeah. The Cubs fans are like, you know, they wear button-up shirts and <laughs> to the games, and it's just about like I don't know. In some ways, the Sox fans um, are resentful of, of the of the Cubs fans, but it's it's like the North South divide in so many places. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's you know the the North the North Siders are more cultured, more affluent in general. Yeah. Um, South Siders more working class, a little rowdier. I mean, I guess they both kind of get rowdy yeah, right. in their own ways. <laughs> um, sure. But yeah, the South Side, um, at least where I grew up, it's um, it's like this this sort of um, you know working class cosmopolitanism, and yeah. if I would if I could call it that, you know, we grew up with lots of um, different kinds of people, um, found ways to get along. There's lots of different um, races and ethnicities that are sort of you know cohabiting happily in in these different neighborhoods there's definitely a history of um segregation and and such um around the whole city but um i would say in general part of what i wrote about in my book say my my book research was based on on interviews in chicago um was that the south side is just sort of treated as this like you know gang ridden segregated and like both those issues exist, but it's not just one monolithic thing. You know, the South side is many things, just like every place is many things. So um, very true. Yeah. Well said, well said. And so what, it, what exactly, you know, with that cosmopolitanism and when that uh, working class, like how did that kind of influence what you wanted to be when you grew up? Like it was that kind of um, you said you got a scholarship, which was kind of different from a lot of people around you uh, to kind yeah. of get out. And I can, and I can kind of attest to that. A lot of people from Chicago, one of the reasons why, you know, I kind of fell out with even a lot of my West side friends and out in the suburbs is like, they just want to live in Chicago and they just want to come back to there, which was great and all, but you know, th- th- it just runs deep. And so I guess you could say like, what, ex- how did that kind of influence what you wanted to be in, when you grew up and, and then how you actually went about it yeah I mean I guess like I I kind of fell for the narrative that a lot of people do which is just like I've got to get out of this place like I'm so different from this place and these people and then um kind of went on a whole long trajectory of you know going to different places I went to the University of Chicago which is it's on the south side but it's like a world apart from the place where I grew up um and then I've traveled a ton and I was just like, what is out there in the world? I just insatiable curiosity. Like, where do I land? Where do I, where do I fit? Um, through all of grad school, where then I came back to Chicago to do my dissertation research, which, which included interviewing people um, in Chicago and in the suburbs and in the, the rural area south of the city oh, okay. and kind of like developed a newfound love of place here. Um, sure. You know, I think that the, that in general, we're sort of told this idea, like people are, you know, the, wherever you're from are, you know, I think of like um, Boyle's Owl, Neil Clark, you know, this yokels, everyone is, everyone is yokels around me. I need to get away from these people. Um, but then, 
you know, I'm, I'm starting to, um, you know, just over the past, I guess, half a decade or, or so, um, coming to appreciate like the beauty of locality, not just my mm. own locality, but the localities that I um, have been a part of or adjacent to, or, um, you know, even a visitor in, I think there's something really beautiful about that uh, locality and belonging and, um, and that kind of thing. So, so now I'm almost kind of like a person who has been in both worlds mm. and can translate between mm -hmm. um, for people. There's like a lot of people who have, who've been in academia and just, you know, are still in the mindset of like, get away from these backwards people kind of thing. Um, and then there's a lot of people who have no experience of academics and are like, they're elite annoying, <laughs> right, um, right. trying to tell us how to live people. Um, mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it's nice that I have had, for me, it's really nice that I have had experiences of both and I can sort of help to translate between the two, the two groups of the culture war <laughs> yeah right right and then so who, who would you say or um maybe not who or, or what uh it can be a lot of things and, and you kind of already said where I guess locality has been that is what what are what are some of the people or influences um that kind of stroked your curiosity first off like for me it was really books and you know films and things like that but for for you what was that um yeah I think it, I don't like at least before I went to college I just sort of thought like I went I had I had an my uncle was like the most cosmopolitan as in you know mm. outside of the of as the uncles usually are you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this person who like really influenced me who was he like had a job in New York City he worked for Comedy Central like oh, okay. you know he's yep. just like this kind of guy who could open up my eyes to like a whole different side of the world and um you know, went to fancy restaurants and stayed at fancy hotels. And um, I, he went with me to visit the University of Chicago one time when I was still in high school, when I was still applying there. And I saw these people um, protesting um, for like some sort of environmental issue. And mm. I had no idea what they were against or for I or see. why. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, just so intensely curious. Like, I just want to be a person who is informed on these things, which I am now. Right, 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 um, right, right. But I just was basically like, I really admire these people who have educated themselves enough to know what's going on with these issues and then taking a stand on them and then tried to do some change relative to these things. I mean, now it's funny that I kind of don't really advocate for a protest type action. I don't, I don't think it like, makes a big difference but at the time when I was a teenager I just thought like wow these people like they're so you know respectable they're they they they're doing what they believe in they they find out what they believe in to right. me that was like a really cool moment and then basically it was just like a long trajectory to get myself educated enough to have opinions about things mm. that I felt confident in having and I, I still feel like that process is ongoing you know I think in general um, a lot of our, a lot of times, um, especially among academics, you make an opinion um, based on your whole set of studies or, you know, experiences or research, et cetera. And then you kind of like um, get fossilized in it a lot of mm -hmm. times, you know, mm -hmm. this is my area of expertise. And if somebody brings me new information, they kind of just say like, please refer to my body of work, you know, and they just like, <laughs> just this is what I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or like, you know, I've, I've established what I think. So, you know, come and just read what I think because I've already thought it and it's done. <laughs> and I, in general, I just think the world is so complex. Like 
there's so much to know. Oh, I, yes. I, there's, there's whole like rabbit holes. I haven't even tried to go down because I just think like, if I go down this rabbit hole, I'm not coming out for years. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. I can't, oh, I yes. can't even oh, yeah. like start thinking about these things. So I've kind of focused my attention on like global supply chains, agriculture, Yep. And just like sort of local grassroots movements. Um, but there's so much more out there to know about. So yeah, in general, I, I still take that attitude of like open curiosity and also admitting when I don't know what I'm talking about, or yes. I don't have the expertise to say, because I think a lot of people, you know, you're, you're thought of as an expert in something. And so can you give an opinion about this other thing? Like, Oh no, I, I'm very, not very true. Sound silly. <laughs> it just sounds silly if I try to pretend I have an opinion on that, or well, or I'll learn something later on and go back and be like, my opinion was so wrong. I should should have just said I don't know. Right, and but I think that that's like a practice of like intellectual humility, and obviously, if you want to really get down to it, uh, if you want to break up around all the politics and what et cetera, like what really the scientific method is trying to do, or or you know trying to get into it, and just like Bayesian reasoning, you know, really of just like, hey, let's keep taking more information, so let's keep applying it, and then I think uh, one of the things that. Um, you have been lauded about in Twitter. We'll get about uh, like how Twitter can be used uh, as an influence a little bit lo- later on. But um, Joe Norman has, has has talked a lot about you know theory into practice, and I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that you you've been especially, or at least I've been tuned in and primed to since he said that. And I've been really kind of trying to even translate that into into me and like because I'm very philosophical, I'm very thought oriented, very meta. But then at the same time, I think I share a lot of the uh, things with you. you know, my, my mother is from the hills of Tennessee. You know, she didn't have running water till she was 16 years old. You know, that was 1972. You know, right. so it's like, yeah, that was, that, that was not, not, a, not that long ago, you know, so it's like, yeah. I, and I have a, I have a visceral history, you know, with, with coal mining and, you know, all those kinds of like things and the opioid crisis. So like, I get the practice uh, oriented on the other side of like expertise and stuff. So I guess um, talk, maybe to, let's just riff on that subject a little bit about theory to practice. And then you even said uh, a little bit of your, maybe not naivety, but every young person, when they see some passionate people, they get passionate, you know, it's almost yeah. like a, a kind of feed off. So maybe talk about how, you know, your own journey coming from more of that passion of theory into like, okay, well, how does that exactly translate into practice? And then not just practice, but like when you fail, because a lot of people just stop there at the practice, they try one practice and then it doesn't work. And then it's game over and we're, we're done and everything sucks. And it's like, well, that's, you're only like halfway there, really, you know, at that point, you know? And so it's like, so, so I may, let's just riff on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I love Joe. Joe and I have shared so much uh, a similar worldview. Um, it's been so nice to meet, you know, a lot of the people on Twitter. You feel like, ah, these are my people. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. I think, I think that the theory and practice thing, now that we just started talking about this earlier on, like, it really does mirror the sort of like academic versus Mm. non-academic working class local is whatever group because I think in general the theory people are like you know the highest form of anything is just reasoning and thinking your way through things and like thinking the right thing or using your big galaxy brain to solve problems and um and then the practical people I'm thinking of somebody like Scratchy Johnson who I love um he's so um he's so grounded in reality in a way that I really admire and wish to be someday um, that he's like <laughs> asking just super, super simple practical questions when somebody comes up with like this high level theoretical idea that's just 
so obviously not ground tested, mm, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so- In the field, I, you know? In the, <laughs> in, in the field. And this is my whole thing about like, I, I came to this um, conclusion via academia um, mm. where I talked about um, this moment I had in, a, in, a, in an environmental sociology class talking about how scientists were studying these salmon populations and the ones who made a computer model in comparison to the ones who went out and counted the fish the computer model people were like so off relative wow. to the people who counted the fish. And I was just like, like light bulb moment. Yes, of course, counting the fish would be better. Like just go out into the world and count the fish if you want to know what's going on. Like sometimes you can't do that, but you know what I mean? In general, oh, we should yeah. be tending toward like, you know, uh, uh, understanding the world as close to the world as possible, which then sends me, sets me on a pathway to like, to like really love and appreciate the people who are doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who are doing that all the time are like mechanics and carpenters and plumbers and home builders. And this is like, I've really gravitated towards a lot of people who do things with their hands because, you know, they're the, sort of the best systems thinkers out there. They're the ones who are like, you know, know that it's trial and error and which is, which is more or less how the scientific method is supposed yep. to work. It's supposed to be like, you throw something out in the world, the world is messy, either it comes back, your hypothesis is correct or incorrect. And like, they're constantly testing their hypothesis, you know? Yep. Whereas people who are just in their head, reading papers based on, um, for example, global aggregate data, um, which loses a lot mm. in the midst of what it's trying to describe because aggregating data at that level is so disconnected from what the way data is collected on the ground and, and like what it's describing. Mm -hmm. And obviously the people who collect that data and aggregate it have to make value judgments all along the line yep. as to what is this describing? What are my assumptions, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff doesn't really go into the final paper. What comes out is, is something like, you know, land use change over time. And then, you know, you don't really know what all the assumptions are underneath there. And then you get this huge disconnect between, for example, people who do regenerative agriculture and have done it for many generations in like the UK, for example, right. being demonized when, you know, because these people who look at aggregate global data and are all theory are saying like this for sure should not exist. You need to go away. My global aggregate data says so. Um, and, and we put so much an emphasis on data that like that alone is now like uh, king of the cat. You know, it's a, it's yeah. like the, the creme de la creme, same along with like peer review studies. You exactly. Know? <laughs> and then imagine like getting a peasant coming in there and being like, look, I like I'm building soil. I've got biodiversity. I'm sequestering carbon. My water table's better. Um, like all, I don't have any flooding on my land. Like I, I, I have, my land is cooler than everyone else's around me because I have, you know, agroforestry practices, all this stuff. And it's like um, the qualitative, yep. you know, that just mm -hmm. can't really be captured in the same way as this quantitative stuff, which people who love theory worship. Um, and so then it just becomes this sort of like battle of classes then because right. like the, cl the class people who, who love the, the aggregate data are the ones in power more or less, you know, and the ones who are the ones out doing the practical stuff on the ground are not. Um, right. And so, so now I've sort of turned to advocate for these practical people to the extent that I have any privilege at all. I try to, to use it to say like, let's take a look at these people who like know these things and do these sure. things and have something to teach us, you know? Yeah. It's almost like I, when, when you were talking to, about the, uh, I don't know, um, 
about how it gets going and it doesn't stop. Like it almost has a mind of its own. It's almost like the, the art of uh, deduction, you know, Sherlock Holmes gone wrong, you know, and it's like, we always put like this emphasis on, you know, like these experts and getting it and, it, and that character really personifies like, you know, using the scientific, everything, everything. And he, he may be hoodwinked every now and then, but he'll come around, you know, but it's like, everyone <laughs> thinks they're, you know, they, they've got it all figured out. And it's like, no, like you, you really don't. And I think what you just said about the maintainers, or I mean, sorry, I, I said, I'm going to say something about the maintainers. Uh, but you were talking about the plumbers and the electricians and the people that like, really keep, you know, this world going and everything like really uh, it is um, very important. And, and my, I'm going to grad school this, this fall for in the STS discipline. So science, technology, and society. And that's a really interesting kind of subset of, of things is like how things are ma- maintained. I mean, we just saw, what is it in Miami, the, the building yeah. just fell down, you know, and two days before there was a structural engineer trying to do a, a pool thing, you know, and he just found it. And then all of a sudden it comes down bridges, et cetera. So it's like we, and, and then you want to talk about economies and, and work and stuff. It's like, there's, there's so much, uh, there, I guess you could say. Um, but let's, I guess, parse into uh, localism, maybe versus like cosmo localism versus um, global, you know, uh, yeah. so I, I want to make a distinction too that someone made. Um, a lot of people in, in today's world like uh, um, critique globalism and rightly so for supply chains, uh, fragility, you know, we saw the Suez uh, Canal kind of stuff. But uh, another thing I, I think something that people need to think about is maybe not globalism or, or a global uh, is, is planetarity, like almost thinking at, at, at that high of level of that this is like kind of a spaceship. And I've written some things on, you know, how that we're always, you know, if we're flying into space as an updated operating manual for Spaceship Earth, uh, influenced by Buckminster Fuller. But like, what is that kind of difference of seeing in scales? Because you just talked about class. Um, well, we're on a global class, if you really want to talk about it in terms of East, West, uh, indigenous, in terms of right. the effects of climate change, e- economics. And so maybe let's just uh, parse out some of those kind of differences between like thinking about the global, you know, kind of issues, but not at, in, a, in a globalist way. And then thinking yeah, about yeah. localism in a way, but doesn't, you know, personify itself only with a local and doesn't, you know, think about the most uh, pressing problems that all of us are going to face now right. that we live in, you know, 2021. So yeah, that's a great, great question. So I like, again, thinking about how I've had this conversation with Joe and, and, and Jason, um, especially, mm-hmm. but um, Jason Snyder for yeah, Jason Snyder Cognizor. Um, So, so basically, the way that I um, think about scale is, um, I was talking about this with Jason and, and um, Trace Crow, whose who's, uh, Twitter handle is uh, Doge at Crow, um, <laughs> the other day. He, basically, my sense is that um, we need to focus on um, local practices that make sense in local contexts, but we can think about global or larger scale. It doesn't have to be global. It could be regional, statewide, nationwide, or global principles. Mm-hmm. I think principles make sense on any scale and actually can be very helpful when you're thinking on larger scales. Like what are the principles that are guiding this? What are, what are our values basically? So, you know, if I take a look at um, the way somebody is practicing um, small scale agriculture in England versus Uruguay versus uh, um, Nigeria versus, you know, Kentucky, Yep. There are very similar principles at play. And I think 
thinking about those principles that that guide us and hold us together and and connect our um you know our our thriving you know our mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. simultaneous mutual thriving um can really help us to think about like you know global solidarity movements or how can we help you know peasants in india and africa and kentucky who are all doing the same thing guided guided by these principles of of care for the land and care for local people and community and etc um then when you start to put those principles into practice the way that those principles play out in practice um i think should should have a scale that makes sense to whatever it is that the endeavor mm. that you're you're mm-hmm. engaged in so um you know joe joe talks about how uh you know it doesn't always just have to be local scale but it should be the the minimum possible scale uh for the problem at hand yeah. and, and i really like that idea and i'm and i'm thinking back to that miami example um part of what was going on there is just this scale that sort of outsources responsibility and allows for corruption. You know, it's just like, oh, someone else will take care of it. Or there's, there are these, um, you know, guidelines for how construction is supposed to be done. And, you know, this inspector did it and this inspector, but none of the people are talking to each other. My understanding is that that had something to do with quality of concrete. Mm. Um, and that's, I, I didn't look into this deeply, so sure, I might sure. be one of those moments where I look back and say that opinion was wrong, <laughs> but I read something about how, um, there's like corruption associated with the quality of concrete because the concrete can get cut with other materials that are cheaper. Um, wow. because then that increases the, the amount of, um, profit and, yeah, and, yeah. you know, at the, at, at, at the expense of structural, quality and which then just yeah, yeah integrity yeah. and so it just brings us back to this class distinction it's just like you know power and I, I honestly think like these class and power dynamics are going to play out they've played out throughout all of history yep. but when you get to a scale that enables global um ways of doing things um a lot of things get outsourced and so for me the the, the promise of localism um, is almost like the promise of holding others accountable and, and being held accountable, mm. knowing what people are doing. It's mm-hmm. legibility, like just even being able to understand what's going on with your neighbors. Like right now you go to the store, you have no idea where this stuff came from, yep. how it was processed, what's happening to the people who produced it. Um, all of that stuff is outsourced and, and made to be external to our consciousness. And so to me, the the scale is just so far out of whack that it's got to like go so much further in the other direction. So I, I tend to, to, to advocate for that. Um, but I do, I, I travel to like 35 countries between college and grad school. I love travel. I think that it's so important to understand other people's lives and struggles and to find common ground and to see what shared principles or values we have. I think like if there were any sort of spaceship moment for me, it's that like mm-hmm, seeing mm-hmm. our struggle as intertwined and, and, and similar, and that we're all kind of um, striving for similar, uh, not practical outcomes, but similar goals, you know, like healthy health, safety, security, community, beauty, you know, these kinds of things. And, and the way that those play out are different for different cultures and, and individuals. But, um, you know, like finding the ways in which we're the same, I think is so key, um, while also cultivating strong 
local ties, which, which I think does sometimes mean exclusivity. You know, mm. we're mm-hmm. just an inclusive group. We all have this set of values. We found each other. We work together. We're, we're committed to it. For example, it could be just a place, you know, mm-hmm. our inclusivity mm-hmm. is, um, south side of chicago our inclusivity is i lived in pullman washington the palouse you know we we all love this bioregion if in the in the yep. parlance of a lot of the bioregionalists you know we love it it's our place we, we 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 want to care for this place and there's inclusivity in that and that's okay you know i think in general we just take these really maximalist positions like all exclusivity is bad you know we can't be exclusive we have to everybody needs to be included all the time well some kinds of of exclusivity are good. They can breed yeah. a kind of pride and and care, you know? So I think just having those nuanced views is so key. Yeah, because if you lose the context, you can easily get into this like, uh, you know, chimpanzee us versus them, you know, mentality of just like warring. And it's like, it doesn't really matter about what the idea is, who the people are, where you're from. It just gets right. into this like eternal battle of good versus evil. And then we're, we're back at square one, you know, right. I thought we had uh, progressed, you know what I mean? And been right. enlightened and all, everything else. So, but, but, but interesting you say that in a lot of ways, because I think some of those principles is uh, first thing I was thinking of is, is like transparency. You know, the reason why, you know, you and I don't know what's in the supply chain chains and everything is because you know we have this large business and industry edifice like that's completely supplanted on because of this you know economic structure that you know you and I didn't vote for we didn't put together for you know whatever but then now you're really seeing uh uh, which which gives me hope, you know, in a lot of different ways is 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 these things springing up out of the the woodwork in between these. And so I guess yeah. now let's let's talk about even though there there uh, you might be within a system and within you know the confines of things, uh, variables need to be changed, et cetera. You know, what are some of the principles of I guess the the continuation. I mean, I don't, we'll get into doomer optimism in a little bit. So maybe let's just talk about optimism in general. Like how, how do you even go about doing that? Is it more of a, or are you personally, do you go about solving problems uh, in more of a, um, you know, let's look at it from 5,000 feet up and really, you know, tone in on exactly all the different intricacies, or do you feel it out? Like what is the most pressing thing at this moment or even more than the most impactful, what is the most newsworthy, you know, et cetera. So how do you go about like looking at these different issues? Uh, it's it and then also um you know having an optimism and we'll get into doomer optimism specifically later but like in general yeah yeah so basically um i had this moment i had this aha moment in college where i took this class called um is development sustainable just it's you know answering the question throughout the class like yeah uh development like development meaning economic development like building things and there's always these words sustainable development like And the question of the class was, is development sustainable? Like, should we even Mm. be saying those two words together? And um, in that class, like my environmental consciousness just totally exploded. Um, I like had no idea about all these environmental problems. And so um, one aha moment I had in that class was basically this is the problem. This is this is the problem set of problems to be solved throughout the rest of our lifetimes and it's not just environment like the environment is connected to like the economic the social the political financial all this stuff so like i i you know i just think environment is one um strong way in which people are connected to um to wanting to seeing a problem to recognizing it you know like they care about the earth they care about um life on earth so it's one way to recognize that there is a problem but i think it's just the the whole environmental movement um, or set of problems is 
it's just the um the the symptoms of a larger problem mm, you know what right, i mean it's right, all right, systemic right. it's all systemic so i had this aha moment that was basically like we all have a role to play in this like if we're to solve this problem it's going to be like all of us doing a bunch of tiny things yep. um until we all work together enough to figure out the solution and and i was like oh, there's so much potential here. Like, this is crazy. I can't believe how much potential there is to solve this stuff. Um, and like, at the time I was thinking like, we just need jobs and like this in solar panels, you know, and there's so <laughs> many jobs out there and stuff like that. And I was just thinking along those lines. Now, the way I think about it is <clears throat> more or less like I, I, historical materialism um, is a way of thinking that um, it's not totally deterministic, but it's basically like, we know that history goes, you know, you have certain lessons from history thing, you know, sort of things happen, you can learn from the past. And, mm -hmm. and one um, historical materialist take that really helps me to wrap my mind around how social change happens is, is called dual process theory by um, this, pro this professor who now lives in Mexico named Morris Berman. And the dual process theory is basically like societies fail. Mm -hmm. um, and when they fail, other societies grow. So he was talking about like the end of um, the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And as that failed and faltered, there were all sorts of moments where you could say like, oh, it's truly failed now across the Rubicon. But really, that's, that was, you know, that was not the, the total, the total end. Um, and then in the, in the midst of that failure, um, there were all these sort of like mystery cults mm, starting up, and they sure. were, they were all similar to Christianity um, in structure and form. And then, you know, sort of Christianity took a hold. It had, it had enough um, adherence that it then became the next world order. And then, you know, it sort of like changed from the Roman Empire to the Holy Roman Empire. And it became Christianity was the, was the next world order in, in Europe at that time. So I just think um, we're probably in a period now of decline of one world system. Mm. Um, again, like the scale is just so wildly out of proportion to any past empires, but it's still the same kind of like dominant world system that's failing. And when a system fails, a lot of the things people rely on, um, even for basic things like food or sanitation, transport, that kind of stuff, it fails with the failing society. Mm -hmm, like this, mm -hmm. the society fails to provide um, what it what it once was able to provide. And then when that happens, people have to seek out some alternative means of doing things, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. accessing food or making buildings that don't crumble, whatever. Right. And so basically, um, people are forced to invent alternatives right and that's what i'm interested in right and it, it, it's not really that much of a conscious process a lot of the times people come to food production for example because they're like um you know either i there was times where i couldn't access food on the shelves where there was some kind of disaster and that really freaked me out i don't know the quality of the food on the shelves um, you know, I, I don't trust these things. There's no good food in my neighborhood, for example. Um, and, and it's just, to me, that's just a whole host of failures of the system. And so then, mm -hmm. then these people like go and seek out some other way to access food because the system is not providing it in the way that they would like. Um, and so for me, I think it's what's really positive about that is that anything that sort of upsets you about the way the world is, and anything you're pulled towards to create that mm. is solves your solves your actual problems, but you also love and care about, 
like go do it. You know what I mean? So for me, it was like having chickens and planting fruit trees and getting cattle for the first time. Like to me, I'm really interested in how all those systems work. So I want to try it. And it simultaneously solves the problem. Like if we don't have access to global food for some reason, I'll have this food. And so, you know, I think like if I start to think about solutions, I think of them as multi-pronged. It's not just like Mm. some person, um, purposefully saying let me change the world and they do something that's like maybe esoteric or like specific to them but instead it's some person who's like actually trying to solve a problem of their life right right in a way that they're interested in and i think like we need new education systems transport systems ways of building uh ways of uh, making urban environments for example like urban planning food agriculture like all this stuff we need new ways of eating, like even restaurants, new, new way, kinds of community structure, all this stuff. Um, anything that interests you, like we need, we basically need like soldiers in this fight. And the way that I think about it too, though, is like, um, there's also like this weird period if, if this is like the graph and, and one society is going down and another one simultaneously going up, oh, like yeah. there's a cross point um, where it's kind of awkward and, and you don't, you're not in either. Yeah. You know, and so like if I'm somebody who thinks that one is going down, another one's coming up, it's hard to convince these people like it that it's happening, you know what yep. I mean? So that I'm just like, you know, just try anything because once we get to this really low point, it's gonna suck. Like it's gonna be horrible. People a lot of people are gonna all struggle because they're yeah, <laughs> and we don't know how to live without this, you know. We haven't yep. yet built this yet. And so we need like that a lot of people working in this. So my whole effort is just trying to get more people you know, like a little further along on this curve before mm-hmm. they're forced to, you know, and then we have to go into the next one. So that's, that's beautifully said. Yeah, no, that's beautifully said. Cause we're trying to almost do that with like stories and uh, myths and like how, uh, you know, people that are just going about their daily lives and, you know, their blue collar work and stuff, but then just doing a little bit every day. If, if, you know, I, if we could provide an interview or an essay to make them trip over their own truths and, you know, all these kind of things like then that, that, that's a, that's a job well done uh, in, in our book. Um, so then let's talk about, I guess, um, I guess. W- wait, wait, w- I just, I want to add one, okay, some, one thing to that point that you just said, I think it's also really important to reject the scale um, question that people Mm. ask about social change. They say like, you have this idea. Well, if 7 billion people can't do it, then it's a failure of an idea. And and it's like, and I, I I personally think like it's the completely wrong um, approach to this thing. What you just said, one story, one, one episode, one interview, one piece that could make a moment that clicks for people. Like basically we need to reject like the idea that every single thing needs to be as fast as possible and as much as possible, but instead um, accept the humility, humility of incremental change, you know? And I think that's really cool. Like to just be like, I don't think I'm more important than I am. I just want to do my tiny little part to like make one little change or one, if I could have one little person set on a slightly different trajectory because of something I said or wrote or 
something I demonstrated, like that would be, that's okay. Like, that's good. That's actually a win. Like that's a huge win for me, not just a little win, you know? Yeah. And, and I've so been I, a part of that other side too, plenty of times. And yeah. throughout my, and I mean, through maturity, as you said, like now we're getting to this like slow burn, you know, really building yeah. foundations of, of networks rather than trying to change things. And I think uh, not to get too cliche with the, with the African proverb, but it's like, you know, if, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to <laughs> go far, go together, you I know? I mean, that. it's, it's That's like, beautiful. so yeah. it's, it's a very interesting way to kind of just to, to prime your mind. And I guess the easiest way to do that now is um, you were just talking about fast um, and efficiency and, and all these other things that, you know, is, is part of this meta modern world. And so let's talk about someone that maybe uh, changed our perspective on that, or at least been a big influence in me in the last year of uh, resettling America and, and some other books is uh, Wendell Berry. So he's been a huge, huge part of like, um, this technological pessimism, if you really want to get to Luddism, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the differences of that. Uh, but really, for me, it was like a technological, you know, realism, you know, taking the best, you know, highest on the bleeding edge of technologies, uh, if it's useful, you know, in the context of what you need, and then going about it. But then other than that, not going past the threshold, because I think a lot of things that we've just been talking about is that we've been, you know, uh, playing hands that we don't have, you know what I mean? Right. Like, and then like uh, with the profit motives and, and those kind of things, it's like, wait a second, if you don't make concrete good enough, there is, you can't go past go to get profit. You know what I mean? Like right, there's right. a lot of these things that just like shouldn't be happening, but just because of the sheer uh, aggregateness of systems and t- t- uh, systems upon systems, et cetera, like you said, the apathy of, of, of meta systems and, and things like that, we could really kind of bring in the empathy of this localized or or a bottom-up kind of thing. And, and Wendell Berry has been one of those influences for me. So maybe let's talk about him and then any other influences that really had, I, I think uh, you've had a recent podcast guest that, that, that I was in attendance to that we can talk about her and she, she's been kind of fighting the good fight as well. So maybe yeah. let's talk about some of those influences that really are trying to bring us back down to earth, you know? Yeah, yeah. So basically like, I think in general, um, <laughs> this is weird, but I think that like the enlightenment, um, it goes back to the enlightenment, which just basically says, you know, our brains are so big and smart that we can control everything and know everything, you know, um, and all it takes is us to invent our way out of problems. And so it's really just a matter of, it's a problem the human brain can solve. And we can basically solve our way out of basic human conundrums, like death, you know, like these Literally kinds of nothing, no subject is off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which, is, which yeah. in some way as a human, I'm like, okay, yeah, hell yeah. We're yeah. humans like, fuck it, you know, but in another yeah. way, it's like, again, theory to practice. So, right. Exactly. And I think what happens though, is that you think it's just, um, you know, the human brain solving everything through science, but what's actually happening is that you're just externalizing costs. Mm, um, so I'll give you an example. Costs. So yeah. like, um, Vandana Shiva, and this is, and this is similar to, to, um, Wendell Berry's work, but Vandana Shiva, um, who we had on, on the Doomer Optimism podcast at the STOA, um, or series at the STOA, she is constantly fighting against Bill Gates, because Bill Gates wants to come into India and Africa, and they want, they, he wants um, people to, to get off their peasant small holdings, which are mm. wildly diverse, and biodiverse, and, and all these kinds of systems that 
<clears throat> they're basically unmeasured. People don't measure peasant ag. Um, and a lot of times it's because, for example, um, <clears throat> they'll have a small garden. It's not standardized the practices. They, they're doing everything different according to their own land and their own culture and all this stuff. And, and they'll have a garden and then they'll run some ducks through it or they'll run. So it's multi-use and it's stacked functions. And so <clears throat> there's no way to collect data on that in the way that right. there is about like, for example, pea protein, which is what is being used in these plant-based burgers. And so they'll say like plant-based burgers with pea protein and monocropped fields and chemical fertilizers and, um, and pesticides that are patented by corporations and require giant machines mm. is more sustainable than what these peasants are doing. Um, but it's, it's obviously not. And so right. um, basically what happens is um, this technological religion says we've solved the problem of food and efficiency the way that we've solved it is transforming fossil fuels into a bunch of other types of chemicals and using the soil as basically like a dead substrate to toss chemicals on that then patented food grows out of and this is the way we um make the most sustainable food in the world we're geniuses we've solved it um, but it it actually doesn't do any of those things and the yields have gone down all sorts of farmer suicides and all this sort of bad outcomes, um, but it's just externalized to the to the view of a lot of the policymakers. You know, you just sort of think, oh, this is great. The data suggests this, um, and then you know they don't see the peasant that the, the actual ways in which this affects peasant livelihood or biodiversity of um, non domesticated animals on farms, for example, you know, like the, the frogs and the lizards and the birds and all this stuff, they all die in a monocrop system. But mm. that external, um, that external cost isn't factored in right. to the overall analysis of sustainability. Um, and so basically, yeah, I think like, if you tr draw this stark contrast like that, you can see it so clearly, but I think people just sort of get, um, they get blinded by the, the promise of science and technology, mm, you know, yeah. they get blinded by the, the potential and the story that humans are so amazing that we can invent our way out of these fundamental problems, which the problem is, you know, you just have to work for, you have to do more work. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have to do more actual work. Um, it's, it's hard work, but it's also fulfilling work. And, um, and right. I, you can't, really just make um you know like robot slaves do all of these things there's external costs for all of that yep. um and so yeah to me i think it's really just asking the question like is the is this the appropriate technology for the problem that we have and having humility and um and not worshiping science so much or not worship worshiping technology to the extent that it like um it it leads to an outcome that's the opposite of the goal you have. Yep, you know, yep. what are your actual goals and is what's the way to get there? And I think people's first instinct, at least in the developed world among elite people is like, what's the latest technology out there? And to me, that's sort of like this um, outgrowth of the enlightenment where, you know, religion is on the decline and enlightenment thinking is on the rise and the enlightenment thinking more or less goes um we can solve this with our giant brains and we should just basically worship ourselves and our own creations um because we've solved all these problems but um i think 
you know, that is really dangerous thinking for mm -hmm. um, just a lot of other people in the planet. And so um, I think just like also recognizing that those, that is a belief system too, because people say like, trust the science or like believe in technology or whatever. I'm like, I love the scientific method. I'm a scientist. Yep. Um, yep. What you're saying is religion. Exactly. <laughs> literally. Saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what you're saying a lot of times is literally religion. I mean, I'll say some scientific study that you are citing has been retracted and that's how science works. They have to retract some things because of their methodology. And they'll say like, no, no, no. And like, you know, it's just, well, yeah, you I mean, know, it's it's like you you say, hey, uh, well, show me your work and stuff like that, and then they show uh, your their work, and it's not exactly the same thing. And it's like, wait a second, you're advocating this very, very. I would imagine, you know, you're you're, yeah. you're very intense about this. Yeah. Um, a couple of things that that came up with me, uh, what you just said, I loved is um, what use cases are these technologies? What did and uh, I wrote an essay called Technopoly, which is about the book uh, by Neil Postman, and uh, you know, his whole thing was that you know, a, a, any technology that comes in, we need to ask ourselves, you know seven questions, you know, what, what, what technology is it disrupting, you know, and a lot of these things like you were talking about is, um, uh, you know, ecosystems or systems that something fails, something springs up and it's almost inevitable, you know, so it just really is a time horizon of when, when it happens. And so right. as these things come up, it's, it's really about the values and the questions that we ask, but then also, um, like you said, is, is science has become this kind of uh, scientism, you know, this, this very religious kind of upbringing, uh, of, of totality, you know, and, and that is something that I, even at first, just because you got it reinterested in science and the beauty of, of all these kind of ways of thinking and that we can put a body of work together and all these kind of, it's just wild, wild shit. If you really want to look at it in that way, but here's the problem uh, that I want to ask you about is that this last thing is like, if we have a savior complex now, you know, in a lot of things of, of, of science, it's like, well, we have some things that we need saving from actually, you know what I mean? Not I just know. climate change, but, but here's one technology that I, I, th I want to see kind of how you, how, how you parse this out and connect them is the, the, uh, the greatest technology of all is fusion energy, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of like been lauded as this thing that's almost here but that's been perennial almost here for years and years. But then recently there has been some rumblings between the Chinese, you know, their fusion reactors, but whatever you want to call about state stuff with that. And then the ITER in France, that's been, they're building that for the last decade. So right. well, let's get into like kind of the different energy sources, you know, oil, gas, fossil fuels. Uh, we've gotten to somewhat of renewables. Oh, wow. Solar is kind of coming down. Uh, there's been a lot of those kind of things, but then we really need to get to the regenerative kind of thing. And then holy grail of energy sources for regeneration is the effing sun you know what i mean and so <laughs> yeah. like if we can do that here then we're, well are, are all our problems solved you know what i mean right. like that's right. kind of what it is so we're yeah. still on this path and so let's just uh riff on that a little bit sure so um yeah the like cheap fossil fuels uh, when i realized what was happening with them that has been like a i don't know what the right word is like some sort of framing framing idea for me like my whole life I think a lot about like does this thing exist because of cheap energy or not and what does that mean for you know all of these systems for example when right. I first realized like oh yeah fossil fuels are non-renewable um so like plastic gloves in <laughs> hospitals everything you know what I everything. mean I'm just thinking food everything. containers like, like everything yeah. <laughs> everything like that we're just assuming will exist yeah. forever like built our entire system around i was listening to this podcast um 
the Pulse Carbon Institute uh, about net okay. energy. And it's the same exact topic. It's basically like, I guess some of these manufacturing processes, and this is not my area of expertise, but sure. some of these manufacturing processes require constant, um, uh, con they need to be constantly producing something. They can't mm. stop or right. the whole things in the system will like gum up and the whole system will break. So they require constant fossil yeah. fuel energy. And then this woman who was being interviewed was talking about how, um, for example, to make steel, like you have to have super, super high heat. And the only mm. way to get that amount of high heat would be to like cut down so much of the world's forest to get like uh, something equivalent to the high heat required gotcha. for steel gotcha. um, that is allowed by liquid fuels. Then she was talking about how for example, how we run trucks um, around the U.S. and the battery required to move a truck the, at the scale that they currently move in, in pounds, and I would know because I used to be a truck driver, um, is, is literally like the battery would take up the whole truck. All you would transport is the battery. Yeah. Because of course it would. <laughs> like You think about how much energy would have to be stored to move those things and the mm -hmm. amount of pounds, but then the whole system just has to be a battery, you know, right, um, right. because, and batteries take up weight. There's some mass to them. Um, so just thinking about the scale of the problem, it's so, so overwhelming. Another point on this um, is one of my, I would say I'm, I'm in this intellectual lineage of this professor at, um, at University of Oregon, connected with a lot of the professors who trained me. His name's Richard York. Okay. He has written a lot about, um, as renewable, as any sort of alternative sources of energy get exploited in the modern era, so this is in the, in the industrial era, our total energy use has just increased. There mm. is no transition from one source of energy to another. There has only been addition. So as we oh, wow. like look into alternative sources, we just add to our total amount that we're using. <laughs> because of course we are, we're just animals. You know, when I think about it that way, like, the biological determinist side, like, of course, we would exploit every energy source we could possibly get our hands on. Yep. And then so many, because a lot of that stuff is relatively cheap, that energy still, um, we make really, really stupid decisions with it. Like my example that I always say is shipping peaches from Chile to be packaged in Wait, Thailand. Thailand and come and back to me in California. Back, Let's yeah, go. Yeah. It's Let's like, go. It's like, <laughs> is choosing that, you know what I mean? So then when yeah, people yeah. say stuff like, well, we just need like nuclear energy or, or, or like some sort of alternative, like, first of all, we need to stop shipping peaches around the world. That's like, and that's just one example. Like everything is being shipped around the world like that. It's so stupid just to exploit cheap labor costs, which is another like amount of exploitation. It's just human exploitation. Yeah. Um, and so to me, like, I would prefer us to not find a silver bullet that allows us to just easily transition to keeping the system as it is. Like it cannot continue as it is, even if we found a silver bullet because there's ecosystem limits that come with that much energy use. Right. Like there's will be just other environmental disasters that come as a result of just using energy at this rate. Right. Um, and so, because that means you're pulling materials out of the earth to transform them and then throw them out at a different part of the earth, ostensibly. So um, basically I would like, and I think what is probably gonna happen is we'll have some sort of energy decline, which we'll then adapt to, but if we could sus 
simultaneously find cleaner sources of energy or reusing already manufactured things mm -hmm. to produce um, kinds of energy, uh, using the sun to power things. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just think constantly about um, mills, you know, just water wheels, like that, that's a, that's a source of energy, you know, there, there are, it's like, free. It's just sitting yeah, there. Yeah, 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 <laughs> there's so many other, there are things that have been used for energy in the past that, that are, that we absolutely could go back to if we scaled everything down. So mm. ideally I would like to see a transition into a lower energy, um, just livelihood worldwide yep. um, that then coincides with some sort of um, solutions coming up with, you know, uh, more sustainable forms of energy. I remain skeptical about just renewables in general. Like I, what are the externalities? Like what are the yep. things that aren't being, you know, measured? I think there's a lot in electric cars and solar panels and wind, uh, wind turbines that are not being measured at all. They're just not sure. being part of the calculation because people just want these things to be adopted. Um, I read something about from a, from this like um, engineering journal about how like manufacturing those giant wind turbines and taking them down to service them, the amount of energy it takes to do that, to, to manufacture, transport and service makes them net energy neutral. <laughs> So it's, it's really, like, we're just getting what right are we back doing? To, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like what uh, are we doing? We're just using fossil fuels to pretend yeah. that we're making energy from these other things. And, and maybe they're better now. I don't know. But it's just like that. I think I'm so skeptical because I've read enough of these things where I'm just like, we just make such bad decisions as a species yep. and a culture. Like, I don't really think that the people in charge are like, are like responsible adults basically i yeah, just don't no. think they are and so i don't think that they're like telling us the truth with these things and so um anyways but i do think that like people are already um finding ways to live more low carbon lives and this yep. is these are the people that i focus on because i think like they're basically the ones innovating things and the ones we should look to in the future okay. of low energy i think and then let's, well, then let's move right into that. You were just talking about low carbon future, uh, localism, things like that. Well, you wrote a book, Subsistence Agriculture. We've, we've just talked about energy sourcing, uh, regeneration, et cetera. So then let's maybe just set the stage for subsistence and regenerative agriculture, your book, talk about that. But then also we, we've kind of just uh, glossed over, but now let's talk to the meat of, of, of what you do is really turning that theory into practice is you run Rizoma Field School, which yeah. is you know, let's, let's talk about the difference of the school, the foundation, but then I'm going to prime uh, with, with, with some, with some taglines that I think that really can hone in on people's uh, uh, remembrance of this. So like building a regenerative future. So again, like that's, a, that requires agency to build something. It's not a, re a renewable future. It's a regenerative future. And then also there is a future. We're not talking about the past and the present, you know, stuff like that. So I love it. Um, again, more of the future is uh, experimental learning for a resilient future. So again, like going into what we were just talking about, the, uh, uh, the real scientific method, the real Bayesian reasoning, real getting it out there, getting your hands dirty in the field with theory, that, that, that ultimate kind of uh, marriage of, of science and humanity, et cetera. Um, and then the, the really the, the the thing that struck to, out at me is the time is now 
you know, that was very to, to, to what you're doing. So you can talk more about what the foundation is doing and, and what it's launched to, but um, it's really about sustainability, freedom, diversity, and health. Like you were saying is that the, these systems, agriculture is not separate from energy and it's right. not separate from humans and it's not separate from society. So like, let's just kind of pull all those strands into, into, into one. Yeah, sure. So regenerative agriculture um, it's basically just a term. It's like, it's like a step beyond sustainable. Sustainable is let's just um, continue to sustain things as they are. Regenerative is how can we as humans live in within ecosystems in ways that doesn't just sustain them and keep them how they are, but mm. actually regenerates them, makes them better, healthier, stronger, more diverse, whatever. And, um, and there are historical precedents for this and not just historical ones. There are people doing this ha that have been doing this um, that more or less just want to be left alone, but um, they have a lot to teach us. Um, and, and a lot of knowledge is still held with a lot of people doing what I would define as regenerative agriculture. They probably wouldn't, you know, mm. and I think that's really important too, is to recognize that a lot of these terms um, are for disconnected people to try to make sense of the world but um language people, you know yeah, salad, yeah. yeah and the people <laughs> i'm talking about wouldn't use those terms um but it's yep. just for me to try to translate like what i'm seeing and what what i think are the important points to to this audience of people who are who are looking for solutions and are disconnected from them yep. um so for me i think it was really important i i did my my um my dissertation work talking to people who self-produce food in Chicago. And it was just so cool what these people were doing. Just, I mean, for example, in the, in a backyard in Chicago, this guy's got like ducks and turkeys and chickens oh, wow. and Guinea fowl in the garage and a garden <laughs> on every roof. And like, and was trading um, eggs and, and um, having the ducks processed on a farm out of town um, and going back and forth with manure and compost and vegetable boxes. And, and that there was this one group in Chicago um, who took over this abandoned lot and <clears throat> were in the, the south side of Chicago near Calumet Harbor, which is a little lake. Um, and they, they took in some people's boats that people were throwing out and they took the boats and put it on the lot and filled the boats with, with soil. Um, oh, wow. And so it's like repurposing things. And then the city of Chicago, a lot of people get um, Christmas trees um, processed from the city of Chicago and turned into wood chips. So there's like a, a whole system to get them processed. So this, this group, they, they have nothing, they don't want, the city of Chicago doesn't want the wood chips, which is just insane if you think about it, like right, how right, valuable right. that resource is. But anyways, they were like, any person who requests wood chips, they'll go drop them up. They dropped off on this abandoned lot, like several truckloads of wood chips this is a this is a former sherwin-williams paint factory this lot um and they they put the wood chips down and the people in the lot um they inoculated the wood chips with mushrooms because oh. you can you can remediate like toxins with mushrooms um and so you inoculate them and then that turns it into soil through their you know natural composting process and so they were like experimenting with this testing them testing the what was in it and then testing like what soil came out at the end and seeing what heavy metals, if any remained and that kind of thing. So amazing. Like that's regenerative to me, right. you know, and that's just some people in the city. There's a bunch of people in, in rural areas who are, who have like this sort of like hunting conservation ethic and fishing yep. conservation ethic. And it's like, how can I hunt and fish and produce for myself in a way that's 
respectful of the ecosystem or make the ecosystem even better. Yep. Um, and like, for example, deer populations are way out of control, out of balance because there's not predators. And so uh, lowering deer populations is better for the ecosystem. But you know that if you're somebody who's conservation minded and knows the ecosystem. Um, and so learning all that, I was like, wow, there's so many cool people out there who are just absolutely unrecognized for their like really wonderful ways of relating to ecosystems. Mm. Um, a lot of times these people are demonized, like hunters are demonized. Oh, yeah. um, and, and I just think, wow, like if people really knew the ways in which you related to your ecosystem and what you thought about these things and what you, um, what your goals were, you know, the goals are regenerate regeneration. The same thing is true in Uruguay. And this is like, gets back to our principles versus practice thing. Like the people share the exact same principles, the agroecological farmers we work with um, who are part of our community in Uruguay, you know, the same kind of principles, like how can I produce food for my family, making the ecosystems that I work in better than they were before. And so that aha moment with the salmon um, scientists mm -hmm. informed me wanting to um, take students on study abroad trips to like really work alongside these farmers and just That'd get out there and see what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. what the field school is. The field school, we've hosted student groups um, from Ohio State University, University of Idaho. Um, we had a plan in place to host a student group along with the class from Washington State University, which is my alma mater, my, just my uh, PhD. And, um, and they've loved it. I mean, it's been so rewarding. It's been so it's wonderful. Awesome. And it paused when the pandemic hit and it hopefully will start again, but the students just absolutely eye-opening experience for everybody. And basically they go and work alongside the people, the, the farmers, um, the farmers identify projects for them to work on. They have some conversations back and forth. Why do you do things this way? And the, the insights that the students get are, are less about the farming than they are about the social system. Like they see mm. the neighbors come, the kids are around, everybody's lending a hand to one another. I mean, it's just part of this, you know, network of people that, that only thrive by working together. And I, I love those insights. And then in the evening, I talk to them about sociology and say like, why is this important? They ask me questions like, why are they doing things this way? And then I can help translate between the two worlds. Um, I absolutely think that kind of model of education is essential. I think mm. tons of people want to get onto farms. I think it yep. should happen across the United States or across the world. Um, there's tons of people who are getting into homeschooling now and taking their kids out of school. And like, I, I'm really interested in, in empowering farmers to build education programs into their model um, because a lot of farmers are competing with like industrial agribusiness and, and um, yep. they could use supplemental income to teach the things that they're learning um, to, to students because kids love this stuff and, and even sure. up to high school and college. Um, and then the, the foundation is basically pulling together um, all of those insights and the work that I'm already doing to keep advancing these projects. So it's, um, I'm trying to build these, uh, a curriculum to, to, that is just what I've learned from my time um, hosting students in Uruguay that are hands-on experiences. Um, basically, how do you facilitate those experiences? What kinds of questions do you ask around them? What kinds of reflections, that kind of thing. Um, and I'd like to see, I'd like to do some sort of policy work to get that adopted uh, as, as a sort of model for education. Um, the Loconomy project is, I'm trying to get um, a, a, so, a software platform, I'm writing a grant now, 
um, to get a software platform. And so I'm not really like a total Luddite because I do think technology has a role in some things. And, you know, people use the internet sure. to find, um, you know, to, to, for e-commerce. Uh, I, was, I was thinking it would be useful to have a technology platform for local producers. We'll start with food, but it can move on to other things. Um, to upload their products and, and find customers and, and pick local distribution points and, and um, sort of strengthen local economies that way. Um, so I'm writing- and really do it from a totality, like a comprehensive way, right? That's been right. one of the things that people get, maybe this side, this side, this side, but they don't get the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, sometimes you can search on Craigslist or sometimes you can exactly. find somebody on Facebook Marketplace, but it's not like this whole marketplace that's specifically focused on a, a locality you know this mm -hmm. is about buying in you know whatever the south south suburbs of chicago where i am now um for example so it would be you know really focused on um localizing supply chains um and to me i'm not a purist about this kind of thing i think like even if it came from New Hampshire to Chicago, it would be an improvement on Chile to China to, sure. you know, Chicago. Right, 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 right. So just I'm like, I'm like, just, we're so far out of whack, like anything right, right. that goes in this anything. direction. And I think that a lot of times environmental people are very purity politi politics. They'll be like, Absolutely. oh, you know, if this isn't the perfect solution, like, well, what do you, how do you define local? It's like, it doesn't, it literally doesn't matter. We're literally sending things tens of thousands of miles yeah. around the world it's so stupid let's just go in the other direction and keep building systems in this that that tend toward this direction and hopefully we'll be better it's like i don't know it's 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 funny the different worlds that i inhabit um so yeah so that so resoma foundation is basically just trying to um from a non-profit point of view it's really important to me that it's non-profit um to to approach these different problems and not for example, Loconomy, I could have tried to approach it as like a VC startup type thing. Sure. Um, but then your incentive structures are crazy. Oh, you know, yeah. like you're just, you're, you, who you're you, hiring, you owe yeah. your life to these people yep. who gave you money and they want their returns and it's super high risk. And um, it makes your whole system built around maximizing profit for these investors. Um, whereas I believe if we build it as a nonprofit, pilot it, me pilot it as a sociologist, meaning asking people how they're actually using it and building a tool that's useful for actual people, yeah. as opposed to how can I squeeze the, uh, the largest amount of money out of these people. Um, but instead, how do I build, if my, if my principle is how do I build a tool that advances local economies and helps people, you know, access local food or sell local food, um, then I could maybe transform it into some sort of cooperative that whose incentive structure is then to help the people who are the actual users and to, to put money back into the community. Um, but I think those incentive structures really matter um, mm -hmm. for, for the, the way these different institutions are built. And when I learned how VC funding works, which I literally just learned these past months, like learning, talking to people on my team who are into tech, I was like, this is sociopathic. I can't believe how this works. Like, I can't believe that this is like the, the assumption of how you fund things and how it has to grow and, and all this stuff. So um, yeah. shout out to PJ Connolly because he's really <laughs> helped me um, help me to parse the different options that are out there and, and um, come to this conclusion that this is the, the right way to approach it. Right. 
No, that's, that's awesome because it, it ties a lot of threads together that you've been working on because it seems like not just like homesteading and even now education, but then the localism aspect like pervades through that. But then now I think we can kind of go into what you've been known most recently on Twitter, the most of is Doomer Optimism. So maybe we can uh, talk about how that, you know, kind of sprung up and things, but, but I, and we'll go specifically into a couple of things. I, I just want to kind of prime it as well. Like, so we live in the Anthropocene, you know, now we are in a, fo- a different fossilized record, you know, like it is going to show up somehow those plastics, all that stuff to, to aliens, to future humans, who, who the fuck knows, you know, whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, but, uh, but climate degradation is big, you know, everything's kind of uh, ecosystem and species extinction you know everyone says we're part of the you know next uh big extinction um so then like, that just kind of sets the tone of like the seriousness of what just earth is going through i mean regardless we know we might never need to save earth because earth doesn't need saving you know it's really us that we need to save uh <laughs> And then we kind of briefly talked about cosmolocalism with the scales, um, because I think, as you said, the, the, the importance of localism and, and how that's uh, perceived in different cultures, different localities, different people, um, but then also some principles, maybe not a top-down uh, thing, uh, but maybe a bottom-up. And then that goes into what I've kind of written about, the updated operating manual for Spaceship Earth, Buckminster Fuller's uh, previous book in the 60s was really kind of a, again, he was trying, you know, a principles kind of like, here's a, here's a book to do something. Well, now it's not going to be a book. Now it's going to be thousands and thousands of local cultures, you know, put together in some type of, you know, uh, edifice or framework or something. And that's really what's going to be an updated operating manual for Spaceship Earth moving forward. Uh, managed retreat, you know, maybe some of that that we had talked about, uh, you know, our different technological futures dealing with the Anthropocene, dealing with climate change. Right. Well, we're either going to deal with it coherently or or not. So right. it, it, that's very, it doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then solar punk, uh, which is kind of the uh, Miyazaki, Studio Ghibli, kind of like getting past our traditional sci-fi dystopic Blade Runner, you know, that kind of aspect and really trying to, again, technological futures. If we can think of technological dystopias, why can we not think of not, maybe not technological utopias and maybe not utopias at all, but, but more coherence, more, you yeah. know, more flourishing. Positive. Yeah. And a positive vision. Yeah. And then lastly, uh, retroactive public goods funding. So before all of our industry business, everything is about like a profit, profit incentives. How can we make a buck right now and not just make a buck right now, but are this quarter, you know, this day. And so maybe m- doing like more public goods and, and really uh, doing out rewards of, of value and such. Now, I don't know exactly how that happens and it doesn't really matter, but these kind of ideas um, are something that we're, uh, we're doomed, but we're, we're, ha- we're, we're optimistic about it. You know what I mean? Like as, as ecosystems die, uh, further ecosystems uh, as r- arise. So let's just right. kind of set those, that, that tone. Yeah, sure. So, um, so Doomer Optimism is right. It's just, it's exactly what you said. It's basically like, um, you know, recognizing the challenges of the time that we're in, um, but finding ways to thrive despite the challenges or because of the challenges. You know, I think there's also something to be said about, we don't want this system to keep going. Like it's not going well. <laughs> people are not happy. They're they're depressed. There's an epidemic of suicide. Like people don't have access to to the the goods and services they need to thrive. You know, if we're if our goal is if our if our principle is just human thriving, we're not doing well. Right. You know, um, and so what alternatives can we seek out um, that can help to be aligned with those principles that we have? Like how can 
we thrive as a, as a species, as a culture, as individuals in the home, um, all of those different things, but, you know, in balance with, with nature and, and the way that I approach humor optimism in general, and I think there's been some critiques on Twitter because I think in general, as soon as a term arises, somebody says like, this is what it is. No, this is what it is. Or these are Contrarians the come out of yeah, the woodwork. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, I know, it's just like, well, doomer optimism is, is a leftist thing or it's a statist thing. Or it's, a, I'm like, the we don't even I know what it is. We don't we even know what it is. Don't, we literally don't, me and Jason literally don't know. It happened because me and Jason were just like riffing on Twitter together. We just yeah. met on Twitter, you know, and, and we just get along so well. And we were, he, he was saying something along the lines of like, yeah, I'm a doomer. I recognize that, but you know, I'm optimistic despite it all. And I think I responded to that, like doomer optimism unite or doomer optimism for the win or something. And, and that's how it was born because it was just basically like him describing his own, you know, process, which I, which I re resonates with me. And, and um, to me, the right approach to something like this, it's not really a movement. It's a description of <clears throat> things that people are already feeling and doing mm. um the right approach is to just bring a lot of people in to talk to one another uh, there are people way far on the tech side of the spectrum um or the cryptocurrency people right, right. um who are like that that's not exactly my wheelhouse but you're welcome like i'd love to have a conversation about that i'm not closing any doors i think that there's um, a lot of potential and a lot of those principles and those a lot of those people are guided by the same principles I am. So um, let's get together. Let's have a conversation. You inform me, I'll inform you about our different perspectives and our, our ways of approaching things. Um, like I said, we all just need like kind of small projects to work on that we love, you know? Right, and right. so I think like if you already love it and you are, you care about it and you advocate for it, um, having a, having a community or an umbrella um, to with, with with which to discuss like the thing you love and you want to <laughs> bring other people into you know I, I'm thinking about this Tolstoy uh, quote from Anna Karenina um, about how you know basically we're all just arguing all night and there's all these intellectual people in the book and arguing all night but what it comes down to is they just like want other people to understand what they love <laughs> and it is right. true I mean you get down to it you're arguing about things it's like I really just love spending time on uh, in in nature with people who love nature and beautiful gardens. I right. love that. Like it, it comes down to it. I'm just like, you know, peasant agriculture, blah, blah, blah. I really just love this. I think it's beautiful, you know, and I right. want to share the thing that I love with other people. Um, and so, yeah, Doomer Optimism is that to me. It's just like, yeah, some people just love Bitcoin. It's okay. Like let them love it. Let them advocate for it. Like Let's just yep. talk about it. Let's and and talk about the merits and 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 let's every let's everybody have a space to talk about what they love. Um, and so uh, I think there's a really important distinction though to be made, but from running away from or running mm, toward. That's a good. And guess. I think a lot of times the doomer thing is I'm running away from or I'm I'm mourning the loss of, um, and it's okay to be both. You know, it's okay to both mourn a way of life that, you know, you've you've grown up in or become used to or or helped make you who you are. Good point. Um, Give validation all, to that because yeah, a lot of people yeah, don't. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like it's okay to mourn. It's okay to be in denial. It's okay to be mm. angry that the system that you trusted and relied on is not trustworthy or reliable anymore. And then, um, you know, running toward 
what it is the this the world you want to see and i think like i said before like that that's dual process it's really awkward i mean it's awkward for a lot of us and people will say like you're a hypocrite or this is not a pure thing or you don't have a solution that's like holistic and it no none of us will like the whole idea is that we're all just kind of feeling around in the dark seeing what comes next um i think like the the um solar punk stuff is that too like it's all just a mishmash and it's right. and it's and i think it's okay that it's incoherent i think like the point is to embrace the the exploration and experimentation mm. not to um try to imagine a coherent set of things in advance because i think that's you know people who are keyboard warriors they're very good at that um imagining a very self-fulfilling prophecy it's yeah, that yeah. and then we get there real quick yeah, and it's like yeah. wait how, how do I <laughs> yeah exactly and I think like they're just not field tested that people don't think about that and they're really good at good point. telling you how you're incoherent or telling you how their vision is perfect but they their their vision has not been tested and so it's probably not going to happen and a lot of people are very good at imagining utopias and not very many people historically have been very good at enacting utopia right, so right. it's okay to be incoherent to be sloppy but i think the, the goal i think is really just to move toward something mm. and to keep learning you know right, i right. for example my journey has been oh i'm you know thinking 20 years ago thinking like solar panels are the best possible thing or maybe more like 10 years ago and then now I'm thinking, okay, how can we work with natural systems? For example, this woman who I love, Tao Orion, was posting about how she culls her forest in a way that's different from the way that forest is clear cut mm. um, and probably produces more energy, like, you know, total wood energy, <clears throat> the way she does it than the way the clear cut people do it, even though they say that's more efficient. Like thinking right. about those different systems that um, might exist and that we might experiment with, I think are, is really important. Um, and, and I don't know, and then just learning where you're wrong. I think it's, it's okay to like revise, you know, revise and keep growing and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I'm open to any and all of the above. I think there's some people in who've, who've contacted me who are like neo-monarchists, like, okay. okay, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What, like, I'm new here. I'm new here, I guys. Know, I don't know what neo monarchy is. I don't know that's what hilarious. that is, but it's fine. Like, <laughs> okay, maybe because there is something about the monarchy that's like that that breeds a kind of like pride and distinction. I see. Uh -huh. Like so, and and I don't really know that much about it. I like I said, I don't want to like make opinions about things I don't know about. But it's a big tent in that. Um, you know, I think if we're guided by similar principles, everybody's got a different way that they think maybe we'll get there. We, it takes all types, you know, we're just yeah. going to have to keep trying all these different things and, and see how it goes. That's great. Okay. Well then let's, let's transition into how we actually make that a, a reality. We've talked uh, briefly about trying to, you know, make a little short film uh, about some doomer optimism. And, and a lot of this, you know, will probably be the, the voice underneath of some of it, but um, how do you really like for, for us, we're going to, I guess this is a, a, a uh, prove a concept of theory into action is, you know, we, we want to take this kind of idea and run with it. And you actually have had some experience in uh, filmmaking and you had some film theory classes and, and things like that. We, we kind of riffed on that. And so I guess let's, let's get a little bit niche, but we can also stay up uh, as well, but like how can film or stories specifically, or maybe 
I don't know, because today we live in such a digital world and it is our kind of uh, environment that, you know, we might as well put some better things out there than maybe, you know, constantly just redoing the MCU universe, you know, and stuff. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, like original ideas and things like that. And so we've like, you know, as as journalism is tanked in the fourth estate and like entertainment monopolies and all this stuff, those ecosystems are going down. But hey, that's what we just saw. We're trying to do our own is like we, we're coming up in our production company and our kind of things. And I don't want to say we're going to to can anytime soon or win any Oscars, but like, man, like there there is ripe for for these kind of things and the, the advent of TikTok and, and all this stuff. So I, I really want to talk to you about not just your future projects. Let's definitely talk somewhat about what you're kind of doing moving into the future, uh, but then also maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of a lens if you will, of, of kind of how storytelling, myth-making, uh, digital stuff, uh, e- even using some of the, that, 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 those, those technologies to, to, to capture this and then not just capture, you know, highfalutin society, academia, whatever, but then, you know, Joe Brewer down in uh, Bariacha, Colombia, you know, he's still writing on the internet and taking right, pictures right. and stuff. So there's, and then you in Colombia, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Internet, so let's, yeah. So. Yes. Um, yeah. So basically, um, my my um my bachelor's level thesis paper was about was about political mimesis um which is basically like how do you brought on by documentary films and the film i i was talking about was an inconvenient truth um and the idea was i did a reception history which which is how are people receiving this movie like what's happening in the real world right. as a result of this film and right. and at that time um this organization moveon.org was a big organization and people were were um planning house parties okay. where they screened the film mm-hmm. and then discussed it and then met other people and um and I went to a lot of these house parties and interviewed people. And um, I went to this, the the opening screen, screening of the film um, and Al Gore was there. And I think like Leonardo DiCaprio was there. And um, and I'm, I had this really curious perspective about how film makes change in the world. And like, what is actually happening when people are sitting in this dark room mm. and their brains are, are, are turning and then they leave the dark room. It's almost like allegory of the cave out into the real world and like the flickering on the screen how does it relate to what's outside the cave um and i think to me um the what what's most powerful about film uh, and really good storytelling is what it makes you do Mm, how it makes you relate to the world outside of the dark room um and and like to me the, the 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 interesting and potentially um, impactful or, or impacting social change aspect of, of media in general is how do we get people to then like really go do stuff or relate to the world differently as a result to ha- of having seen this film. I also think in general, there's way too much of an emphasis on um, storytelling or narrative making as if we would me telling the story in this way would make people think about narratives in some certain way. Mm. Like, like basically the way I think narratives get constructed is people have experiences and then they construct stories backwards. Usually Mm. they try to make sense of it. Something weird happened and then they'll be like, yeah, this thing happened must've been blank. You know, they'll, they'll come up with some sort of explanation. Very rarely do we get to implant 
the way in mm. which people think about stories. And in some ways, it's a little bit of a, like a top-down elite way of thinking about things. Like we just need to make people, and I hear this a lot in sociology groups, um, we just need to make people think like turning off the water when they brush their teeth is cool or something like that. That's the right. level they're working I at. See. You know what yes, I mean? They, yes, they yes. just need to think flying is horrible or eating meat is horrible. Mm. We need to change the narrative. And it's mm -hmm. like this very top down, like we need to make them think something is good or bad. Um, and I, I personally think the, the more impactful, I won't even say the right way, but probably the more impactful thing is to get people to have experiences. This is why I run the field school like this. Get them to have some experience. And that experience can be a film. Um, mm, yes, yes, and, yes. And then mm -hmm. to explain it to them backwards to help them to make sense of it. So like when the students are with the, with the student group or the student groups are with the, um, with the agroecological farmers, they're like, I don't understand this. And then I'll be like, the reason they're doing this is because they're building topsoil and increasing biodiversity and they're really care, care about these things. So I help them to make sense of it looking backwards and then they'll, that they can say to themselves, like, these are the real change makers. Like these are the, um, these are the people we need to be looking to for environmental solutions because I helped them to make sense of that experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Same thing with film. I think if you can help people to integrate their experience or their yeah. thought mm -hmm. back into what is something that that this that I can then apply to my real life, um, or what what is what's the take what are the takeaway points? Like, if I were to say anything, and we can get into this, you know, you know, primed for it already. Like, the takeaway points to anyone listening to me, like the whole point of me being out there doing things on Twitter, doing podcasts, um, and and ideally our film is to get people to to integrate this particular experience this particular conversation to think what is my thing that I love mm, yeah. you know what is so my thing that I can do that I can move toward um and I would I also really really advocate for people to find other people who love the thing they love yeah <laughs> I think that yeah, in yeah. my in my um dissertation research all these people who started keeping chickens they found one another in Chicago and then they started the Chicago chicken amazing. Coop tour. Amazing. amazing. And then all these other people came to visit their, their coops and there will be kids and they're like, Oh my God, chickens. I've never seen this before. I grew up in, grown up in Chicago. My whole and life. a movement is born. And then yeah. it's like amazing. And then all these other chicken keepers come check out other chicken keepers backyards. And there's like, where did you get this coop? Or what did you think of doing things this way? And blah, blah, wow. blah. And then you're like, Oh man, wait, you have bees too. How does that work? And then it becomes this thing. Like, and it really is a thing where you not only make friends, you admire other people's work, uh, who yep. do things that you like to do too. Uh, and, and people just want excuses to get together. And then, then once you have this community of people, you know, they'll really go to bat for one another and they'll really take care of one another. And, mm -hmm. and I think fundamentally what most of us are just seeking is, is belonging, you know? Oh, belonging, um, belonging is huge. Yeah. And meaning, you know? And so I think if the, the goal of a film is to show the way in which the ways in which I've found meaning and belonging to empower you to find meaning and belonging and yes. it's really simple straightforward do something practical there was this there was this thread on twitter about from this guy mashton timmy um who was talking about building or um brewing beer with his friends who's from oh, michigan yes. yes yes yeah and it was like it was just 
doing something that he likes to do with five friends and the way he talked about it, it was like, it literally brought tears to the eyes of many of the people who read it because it was just like, that's all we're looking for is just connection and belonging, meaning making things, um, doing something with your hands that results in some real thing. So to me, yeah, if any of this, the Doomer Optimism film, the tweeting, any of it leads to helping people like find that or at least just take a step onto that path, that would be, that would be the goal. Amazing. And, and and a lot of things came up with that, but uh, let, let's, let's maybe tone for the last question. Maybe we hone in a little bit more in, into that. But uh, what, what I was thinking is it's so funny because when, when making films and like, kind of like making you way to feel like as a director, like you really do kind of want to set the stage, you want to set the tone, but, but it's really, I mean, so, there are very specific films, I guess, if you really want to like hone in and tell someone like what this is and what it's about yeah. and et cetera. Okay. I get that. Like whatever, yeah. but obviously, or, or honestly for me, I think that's way more towards like the propaganda type of like, you yeah. will think this way, you will do this way, whatever. And then right. when we're going over here, what we're saying is almost like, well, we're more in the inception business. And I know the movie inception is kind of, you know, it's like, yeah. we're more in the inception business of like, it doesn't really matter what the hell you're doing. You could be into water retention services or chicken coops or, you know, auto mechanic stuff, like, et cetera. It does not matter what you're doing. It's just, you need the tools, the education to be going out that because then, like you just said, one of the most human things and one of the most amazing things to feel is like when someone else is passionate about whatever it is, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that is an infectious, contagious thing. And so I guess I can set this up as the overview effect question. A lot of people on my channel know about the overview effect. It's when the astronaut uh, literally looks down on the space uh, or, or on the earth from space. Now, a lot of the stuff we've, we've seen this recently in the news with uh, Jeff Bezos and these billionaires trying to get here to, to, to do that. And we, that's a whole nother podcast. So I, I don't really <laughs> want to get into all that kind of stuff. But um, if, if you really, I mean, you've kind of I talked about it. What films, Doom or Optimism, what can these things do? But for me, what I wanted to ask you is this uh, kind of overview effect question of what you would say to the world if you were kind of experiencing this is, is for me, I think what you and Joe and a lot of these people reassess our kind of like lens is to um, reintegrate what it is, a place, et cetera, to us is what is the least common denominator? Now, I know that's very cliche and I know that's very like, you know, you can get into categorization and, and compartmentalization and stuff. But really for me, it's like, I, I think that inception is like, each, if, if we really want to get down to it, the lowest common denominator is each individual human. We have seven, eight billion people on the planet. Well, if you get down to it, we're all just human. So then what, right. are the th what are the practical kind of things, advice that you would give to people of all stripes of life, not just in the United States, not just in India, but, you know, maybe some random mechanic in Sweden or, you know, a <laughs> bicyclist in Brazil uh, that, that kind of cuts through uh, the scale, the family, the culture, the industry, the government, the bullshit, the labels that we put on ourselves. So I, I guess I, I will leave this as your parting words, if you will, uh, for this, uh, what kind of practical advice, what kind of things that you, you would say? Yeah, so I think it's really um, key, and, and this, my travel really helped me with this, like to see, um, you know, a lot of us are striving for the same kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. We're, we're, we, we want connection, we, we, we want um, self-determination or, or freedom, you know, we want um, some sort of meaningful livelihood um and we want uh, you know connection with nature and 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 
I guess, peace with that comes right. with that. And right. I think, um, I think I get I, to me, like the, the thing that keeps coming up for me is this concept of interdependence, the, the mm. ways in which we are all dependent on one another um, is really like a, like both a, a black pill and a white pill. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's popping, so, yeah. it's so, yeah, it's yeah. so beautiful but also like so terrifying really, because I think we're, we're you know, what happens with one of the students I had, um, we're talking with this, with one of the students who came to Uruguay, we're talking with the, the farmer, my, my friend Paola, and she's talking about Monsanto and the destruction it's caused in Uruguay. And she was like, and the, the student was like, my dad does like all the IT systems for Monsanto. Mm. And it was like, yeah, like your dad is, I mean, he's just a cog in a wheel, right? And, you know, he's just building the systems. It's not really deciding what the systems do, but, you know, what he's doing there in wherever, I think San Francisco, is impacting this Paola, this woman in Uruguay, and many other people around the world. That's the black bill, you know, yeah. just like the, the ways in which our, 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 I think it's really important to think about in a global society, the ways in which our, our, choices or you know the what what we do in life impact others um which is overwhelming and i think that's the doomer part the white the white pill part is um what we really need to get out of this is what we what we want anyways you know Mm. a lot of people just want it's not a hard sell like the the kind of future that i'm trying to sell it's like good on so many different levels (laughs) i mean it's good it's like it's pleasant it's nice. You feel connected. You feel belonging. You, you, it's, it's meaningful. You're producing something um, that also makes you feel good. Like there's, you have friends, you have community, you, you know, that this is what we're striving for. It's, it's gonna, it's hard to move from that to this, you know, it's hard right. to move from externality. I don't really know or care how my actions impact other people in the world toward, um, you know, how can I become more interdependent and build this world that I want to live in for myself and for all the other people. And when you realize like, there's really no way to do it by yourself. um, It's both scary and freeing, you know, where you're just like, I can't do this alone. Like I, there's no way to do it alone. So better get out there and start figuring out like, who are my allies and who am I, who can I work with to, to make this thing happen? Because I, there, I have no other choice really. And that, that is a, a good and important thing too, to just like recognize that having no other choice is um, is an inevitability. Um, it's liberating. Yeah. For one, one thing, it's like, it gets back to that doomer optimism. It's like, well, if you got to feel some, some type of way, you might as well feel yeah. that, that type of yeah, way. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you have really, and then, and then, you know, I think just taking that knowledge with, with responsibility, like it's my responsibility yeah. now to just kind of make the, make this world I want to live in, not just for myself or my own kids or my own family, but for everybody around me, um, because I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to be able to do this alone. Um, and kind of being intuitive and, and um, respectful in that act of co-creation. Like I said before, it's like, it's very um, messy and awkward. It's going yep. to be messy and awkward and that's okay. It's not going to be pure. Um, but it is, it is going to at least move us toward where we want to be. It's not going to be perfect. We might not even get where we want to be in our lifetimes, but 
we're going to be better off at the end of the lifetime than we were before. We'll, we'll have made strides in the right direction and that is literally all you could do. So um, yeah, that, that'll, be, that'll be my parting words. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you so much, Ashley, for coming on uh, Collective Spacewalk Conversations. Uh, love to have you again sometime soon. Uh, if we don't see each other, you know, in in Chicago, we might see each other in in North Carolina soon. soon so yeah. appreciate cool. it. Um, okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, until next time, at Astra. Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems.